0: The angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophet's. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings.
1: Good morning. I enjoyed the music. I liked the trumpet and the trombone together. Had some life. Good. The birthday story. Some years ago, there was an excellent film called The Music of the Heart. Some of you may have seen that. It tells the true story of Roberta Giuseppe, who founded the Opus 118 Harlem School of Music and fought for music education funding in the public schools of New York City. There's a poignant scene near the beginning of the story where Meryl Streep, who plays the part of the single mother music teacher, is trying to comfort her seven-year-old son. Her husband has left her for another woman, and she's moved across the country. She's living alone with her two young sons in a cheap uh, apartment, run-down apartment, and uh, the boys are having a hard time dealing with the tough reality that dad doesn't want to be with them anymore. She's trying to explain as best she can that Daddy still loves them, but that he'll never be coming home ever again, and suddenly her little boy just cuts her off, mid-sentence, seemingly uh, changing the subject completely. Tell me the birthday story, Mama, she says, and she can't make any sense of his request. You know the story, she says. I've told it to you a dozen times, and your birthday is still a long time coming why do, you, why do you want the birthday story? Just tell me the birthday story, he says. And so she tells him the story of the day that he was born and how happy she had been and how happy his father had been. And when she finishes, he smiles, and life is better again. Birthdays are monuments of grace, We had two last week, Katie, our middle child, turned 28, and Amelia, our youngest, turned 24. Birthdays are unique among the holidays we celebrate because we don't do a thing to earn them or to deserve them other than exist, other than to make another trip around the sun. But you get a birthday not because you've done some great thing, You get one because somebody else has done some great thing, namely your parents. And so you get it just because you are. And when they come, they remind us, we are loved. We are wanted. Our very being is a reason for joy. Of course, we know that in our fallen world, there are lots of babies who are not necessarily wanted when they arrive, and lots of kids are neglected and unloved. But that's a result of sin. That's not the way God intended for it to be. God's intention is that all birthdays be days of grace. And he wants everybody to to know that they are precious. Because they are, everybody is precious. People have birthdays and And everybody's got a story. And churches have birthdays, too. It's not uncommon in the Bible to come across the retelling of these stories. For example, Psalm 105 is such a retelling. Originally set to music, it is a ballad of Israel's birth as a nation. It rehearses all the significant details from the call to Abraham to the plagues that fell in the Exodus. It centers on God's mighty acts, and the climax of the story is verse 43. He brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. As the ancient people of God recited or sang that psalm, they were reminded, we were chosen, we are loved. And when we read it and recite it, we're reminded of the same thing. In the ancient days, God's people had a custom. They'd set up piles of rock to commemorate significant events in the life of the community. They were called Ebenezers. For example, God commanded his people to set up a rock pile of stones taken from the riverbed after they'd crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land. In Joshua chapter 4 and 21, God explains why they were supposed to do this. In the future, when your descendants ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them. Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters before you. In other words, when you see this rock heap, tell the birthday story. Tell how God chose you and how he wanted you, how he worked awesome miracles to bring you into existence as his special people. We have some evidence that in the New Testament church, the early New Testament church, the new Christians had to memorize the book of Mark before they could become full-fledged members of the congregation. That would kind of slow the baptismal rate down a little bit, don't you think? But knowing the story of origin, how the church came to be, The teachings of the master and the miracles he worked. Knowing that story was so important that it had to be memorized, told, and retold by the community. Seventh-day Adventists have a birthday story, too. And if you've ever been to New England in the fall, you'll know it's a magical time there when the leaves turn golden and the days are sunny and warm and crystal clear and the nights turn cool and crisp. When we lived there, every October, the wonders of the New England autumn reminded us of our story because it was in late October, years ago, that more than 100,000 earnest, Bible-believing Christians gathered in small groups all across the United States, from New England, where it had all begun, to the far western frontier states of Indiana and Michigan to await the mag- most magnificent event ever to take place on this old planet, the return of their Lord and Savior, Jesus. 177 years ago, a time when the American population numbered barely 14 million, and 90% of them still lived on farms. When the Derogatype photographs and gas street lamps and steam locomotives were the latest inventions, and the use of electricity was still decades into the future. That morning, October 22nd 1844 marked the end of the great 2300 year prophecy of Daniel 8:14 and Jesus was coming back. And so they waited that day by the thousands. Their sins confessed, their wrongs righted, their accounts settled. They waited for the one for whom their souls longed. This is our story. It had all started 30 years before at the great Battle of Plattsburgh, that decisive military engagement of the War of 1812 on the Vermont shores of Lake Champlain. The well-trained British veterans outnumbered the ragtag Americans three to one, but the outcome was a total upset. "'Sir, it's over. It's done,' reported an enthusiastic American officer." "'The British fleet has struck to the American flag. "'Great slaughter on both sides. "'They're in plain view where I am now writing. "'It was noble. It was grand. "'Rockets flew like hailstones. "'You have no idea of the battle,' he wrote. "'And then he signed his name, Captain William Miller. "'Captain Miller had been raised a Baptist,' But he had outgrown his Bible faith and he had become a deist as a teenager. Deists believe God to be uninvolved and in personal force that kind of wound up the universe like a stopwatch and then step back and let it run by itself. According to deism, every single occurrence in life could be explained entirely by the great law of cause and effect which was why the Battle of Plattsburgh was so problematic for Captain Miller. According to cause and effect, the Americans never had a chance. They were outmanned, outgunned, outfought. But Miller had read the report of the American Commodore. Almighty God has been pleased to grant us a signal victory, it had stated. Young Captain Miller began to wonder, was there, after all, a personal God who really cared about the world? After the, after the war, Miller returned to his farm in Lowhampton, upstate New York. To be polite, he attended the local Baptist church when his uncle gave the sermon. Otherwise, he stayed away, preferring to hang with his deist buddies and make fun of Christianity. He also liked to poke fun at the way the deacons read the sermon to the church on the days when his uncle had to be away. And one day he remarked that even he could do a better job than they did, which was not such a smart remark for him to make because the deacons made sure that from then on whenever uncle had to be away Miller was the one to ask was the one they asked to read the sermon to the congregation that morning. The more he read those sermons the deeper became his doubts about deism. September sixteenth, 1816, rolled around, the second anniversary of the victory at the Battle of Plattsburgh. A public dance was scheduled, and a sermon, too, the night before. The visiting evangelist sent the people home in tears. A revival was on. The dance was canceled. Next Sunday, it was Miller's turn to read the sermon at church, and this time, he broke down in the middle, overcome with despair over his sins. He imagined how good it would be to throw himself into the arms of a loving Savior and trust completely in his grace. He needed a Savior. The world needed a Savior, but did such a being really exist? There was only one way to find out. And so he went to the Bible, resolving to find out once and for all whether it was God's word or not. And it wasn't long before he had his answer. I was constrained to admit the scriptures must be a revelation from God, Miller wrote. Even more, he discovered Jesus. And the more he read, the more he began to fall in love with him. But now he had a new problem. His old friends began to make fun of him. How do you know the Bible's the word of God, they they taunted. What about all the contradictions in there? Well, if the Bible truly is the word of God, Miller responded, then everything it says can be harmonized and all its parts can be understood. Give me time and I will harmonize its apparent contradictions or I'll be a deist still. And so he set to work. He laid aside every book except the Bible and a concordance. He began at the beginning with Genesis 1-1, and he advanced no more quickly than he could resolve the apparent discrepancies. And one by one, those seeming contradictions just melted away. But what's more, he discovered over and over again the prophecies and the promises that Jesus would return to the earth one day. Since many of the Bible's prophecies had already come true, he figured, why not this one too? Why wouldn't Jesus come back? And then one fateful day he came to the Bible text that was to mark his life forever. Daniel eight fourteen. Unto two thousand three hundred days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This was for Miller. A very puzzling verse. He intensified his study, sometimes staying awake the whole night through. What could it possibly mean? He discovered the starting point of the prophecy, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which was given in 457 BC. Then he discovered in Ezekiel the prophetic year-for-a-day principle, and a simple math calculation gave him the end point. But, What was the sanctuary that Daniel spoke about? It must be, he finally reasoned, the earth. And so it was that two years after his study began, in the year 1818, Miller came to the startling conclusion that Jesus was coming back to the earth at the end of the 2300 years, sometime around the year 1843, Jesus was coming back in 25 short years. Now he had an even bigger problem, because if he was right, then people had to be warned. A voice burned in his conscience, go, tell it to the world. But another voice shouted all the more, but what if you're wrong? And so he studied it again, and he studied it again. He examined it from every possible angle. In fact, for 13 years, William Miller seared the voice of his conscience. Even though his conclusion was ever the same, Jesus is coming back around the year 1843. Finally, he could stand it no longer. Agonizing with God in prayer, Miller finally surrendered. I'm just an old farmer, he told God, but if you open a way... I'll go. The peace that flooded his soul did not last long because 10 minutes later there came a knock at his door. The very first official request for him to share his prophecy studies in a public meeting. Miller was caught again. This time he couldn't back down. Even deists are honest people, he reasoned. How can a Christian be, be any less? So in 1831, at the age of 49, William Miller gave his first series of lectures, sitting around a neighbor's farmhouse kitchen table. He expected scorn and ridicule from his hearers. What he got instead was amazement. The message of Christ soon returned, ignited like a spark in a tinder-dry forest, and the news spread like wildfire. Invitations to lecture began pouring in. Within six months, Miller had to retire from farming because he was in such demand as a prophecy speaker. In eight years, Miller estimates he preached series of lectures in over 600 different churches. You think about that. That's 75 series a year. That's a series of lectures every four days every single one of them, in a different church. Many of them were small churches in small towns, but that was soon to change. By by 1839, his teaching had come to the attention of Joshua V. Himes, who in that day was one of the most influential ministers in the United States. He was the pastor of the Chardon Street Chapel in Boston, and Himes was simply amazed. He was also convinced that Miller was speaking truth. Jesus would come in five short years. We have got to warn people. And so Himes made a courageous decision. From that moment on, he laid his fortune, his considerable influence, and his life upon God's altar, vowing to help Miller spread the news that Jesus was coming soon. Almost overnight, this honest backwoods country farmer was preaching in the largest auditoriums in the most influential cities in America. Boston, Cleveland, New York, Portland. Audiences grew in number from 500 to 1,000 to 5,000, to as many as 20,000 listeners in a single venue, all listening at the same time with no electronic amplification, with no slides being projected onto screens. You think Key Arena in Seattle, okay? Have anybody ever ever been to Key Arena over there in Seattle? All right. Uh, this, This would be like preaching to a sellout crowd in 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 Key Arena, standing room only, with no PA, and people are crowding to get in there and hear. This was the greatest Christian revival ever to take place in American history. And it spread across the country like an unstoppable firestorm. Jesus was coming back. The 2,300 years was almost finished. In 1840... Joshua Himes published Miller's lectures in printed form in Boston in the first issue of a magazine he called The Signs of the Times. That magazine is still in publication, by the way. It is the longest continually published religious periodical in American history. Soon after, other periodicals periodicals sprang up in other cities, the Advent Chronicle, the Glad Tidings, the Midnight Cry, the True Cry, in cities as far-ranging as Cleveland and Cincinnati. The presses ran at a phenomenal rate, and by 1843, eight million copies had been printed, more than one copy for every two citizens in the United States, Everyone in America had at least heard that Jesus was coming again around 1843. By 1841, the movement that William Miller had sparked passed him by. Hundreds of preachers, Methodists, Congregationalists, Baptists, Christian connections, they all preached the Advent message, not the Adventist message. The Adventist church would not officially come into existence for 22 more years, but the Advent message that Jesus was coming back again soon. Tens of thousands of people accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They flocked forward for baptism in prophecy lecture series conducted by such able preachers as Charles Fitch, a Congregationalist who soon became everyone's favorite. By 1843, there were over 2,000 Advent preachers. Among them was a little-known school teacher by the name of James White. After hearing Miller lecture in Exeter, New Hampshire, James retired from teaching. He set out with a borrowed horse, a patched saddle, and three printed copies of Miller's Uh, lectures to preach the good news and after his very first series he baptized 60 people these Millerite preachers as they were known employed the very latest technology in their work camp meetings soon camp meetings sprang up all across the land Advent tent maker Edward Williams was was commissioned to build the largest tent in America, made of heavy canvas. The Great Tent, as it came to be known, could hold audiences of five thousand people. Imagine nearly the entire population of Squim inside one tent. The Great Tent traveled throughout New England, New York, Ohio, Michigan. It attracted huge crowds wherever it went, and wherever it was pitched, people heard the message to prepare for the return of Jesus, because he was coming soon. Repentance was heartfelt. Conversions were genuine. Thousands made preparations to meet their maker. The official name historians have given that movement is... The Great Second Advent Awakening. There were parallel movements in both Europe and South America. Of course, there were plenty of scoffers, millions of them. In fact, there always are scoffers. A U.S. congressman introduced a bill to postpone the return of Christ until 1860. You suppose he was a Democrat or a Republican? Some people leveled accusations against Miller and Himes. Oh, they're just just out scaring a bunch of people and making a bunch of money off of them, they said. And among the mainline Christian denominations of the day, the theological feeling was there really wasn't any need for Jesus to return. The world was getting better and better and better In view of all the discoveries being made, the pace of industrial progress, I mean, soon men and women would be more than human. The conventional thinking of the day held that there would be a thousand years of peace and prosperity before Jesus ever came back to the earth, which incidentally has proved to be hugely disappointing over the last century and a half, has it not? But it can be said, as a matter of fact, that not since Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation had there been such fervent and far-reaching religious revival as the great Second Advent awakening of the 1830s and early 1840s. As the year 1843 drew to a close and Jesus had still not come, some of the Millerites became discouraged and left the movement. Many of the Christian churches that had once welcomed the Advent preachers to their pulpits because of the popularity of the message began to heap scorn on them. Lots of churches kicked out members who still believed that Jesus would come soon. But many Advent believers held fast to their hope. Finally, It was reasoned that the close of the 2300-year prophecy would coincide with the yearly Day of Atonement festival described in the book of Leviticus. Here's how the thinking went. If Christ's death on the cross had coincided exactly with the spring festival of Passover... Then the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8 would terminate with the fall festival of Day of Atonement, and Jesus would return. The Jewish Day of Atonement always came on the 10th day of the 7th Jewish month, the month of Tishri. In 1844, the 10th of Tishri fell on October 22nd. People studied it. They studied it some more. And gradually, hope spread through the Advent ranks. Jesus is coming back. Tenth month, seventh day. October 22nd. Even the skeptics acknowledged that the chronological reasoning seemed sound. William Miller, having been disappointed when Jesus hadn't returned in 1843, was skeptical at first. But he studied it meticulously. He prayed over it, and then he wrote these words in his diary. I see a glory in the seventh-month movement, which I never saw before. I am almost home. Glory. And so it was that the great Second Advent movement moved steadily toward its climax, October 10th. 1844, what a time to be alive. October 11th, only days to go now. Excitement and hope reaches a feverish pitch. As the last days of time run out like sand in an hourglass, tens of thousands of Advent believers in every denomination know that Jesus is coming soon. Storekeepers, close up their shops, employees give up their jobs, civil magistrates resign their posts. The more prosperous Advent believers liquidate their homes and other assets and donate the money to pay the debts off of the less less fortunate so that all slates will be clean when Jesus comes. At the camp meetings, hundreds come forward for prayer and baptism. It's a time of unparalleled and ultimate urgency. Fortunes are given and spent so that the publishing work can go forward. It's mid-October now. On the farms in New England, potatoes remain in the ground, undug. Apples rot on the trees. Hay falls uncut into the fields. The believers won't be needing apples or hay or potatoes this fall. They'll be home. In Philadelphia, a tailor on 5th Street closes his shop in honor of the King of Kings, his sign says, who will appear on October 22nd. A large department store in Brooklyn discharges all its employees. Steam presses run night and day, turning out final issues of The Midnight Cry. The climax builds October 13th, nine days to go, October 14th. On October 14th, Charles Fitch, the popular preacher, takes cold after baptizing three groups of new believers outdoors in a pond in a cold, stiff wind. October 15th, October 16th. On October 16th, Fitch dies of pneumonia, but his small children are told not to cry, We'll see Daddy again when Jesus comes in less than a week now. On October 18th, the great tent is folded up for the final time. October 19th, the mammoth steam presses finally fall silent. Their work is finished. And October 20th, the Advent preachers began heading for their homes to be with their families. They travel on horseback, mostly a few by train. Joshua Himes journeys to Lowhampton to be with William Miller in New York State. Within the movement, believers wait now with solemn anticipation. They have done their work well. Their task is finished. It remains only for Jesus to come. In a place called Deering Oaks, Portland, Maine, a teenager named Ellen Harmon and her parents await his coming she confides to her diary, this has been the happiest year of my life. My heart is full of glad expectation. Outside the movement, the country waits in suspense. Thousands who never joined it search their hearts for fear it might be true. October 21. October 22. Throughout much of New England, October 22, 1844, dawns clear and cold. The Millerite believers gather in groups large and small. William Miller and his family gather in the maple grove beside his house on what are today known as ascension rocks. They watch all day, for they know not the hour their Lord will come. The sun rises in the east as a bridegroom coming out of his bride chamber, but the bridegroom doesn't appear. It stands at its meridian, warm and life-giving with healing in its wings, but the sun of righteousness fails to shine forth. It sets in the west, fierce and blazing, terrible as an army with banners, but he that sits on a white horse, does not return as the leader of the hosts of heaven. Evening shadows stretch still and cold across the land. The hours of night tick slowly past. As clocks chime twelve midnight, a terrible, terrible sadness settles down like death upon thousands of Millerite homes. October 22nd has just ended, and Jesus hasn't come. He hasn't come. It is not possible for us to begin to know the bitter, bitter disappointment experienced by those good people. It is difficult for us 21st century people even to grasp the utter sincerity of these godly people because we can but dimly comprehend the culture of their time in the wake of modern delusional crackpots and religious skepticism of all kind we're tempted to write this all off as just fanaticism but this was a genuine spiritual awakening its leaders honest and diligent men, godly people of integrity. In fact, it is on account of the authenticity of the revival that the disappointment was so deep and so long-lasting. People had, literally, risked and given their lives. Can we begin to imagine how crushed they might have been? Can we hear the sobs of the two little Fitch children as they begged their bewildered mother? But mommy, why didn't daddy wake up? You said Jesus was coming and that daddy would wake up. Years later, James White, one of the eventual founders of the Seventh-day Adventist church, wrote of the anguish of that time. When Elder Himes visited Portland, Maine, a few days after the passing of the time, and said the brethren should prepare for another cold winter, my feelings were almost uncontrollable. I left the place of meeting and wept like a child. Another man wrote of his experience in his diary. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never before experienced. We wept and wept till the day dawned. It was a time of utter brokenness, deep and lasting. The effects of this great disappointment, as it came to be known, And the effects of the ridicule and scorn and derision these Millerites endured afterwards would hang over those bewildered people for almost 20 years. It would be woven into the very fabric of their identity as a faith community. It would define them. On the Today's Message panel of your bulletins this morning is a poem written by a Millerite believer named Annie Smith. It was written in 1851. That's seven years post-disappointment, okay? But it is typical of the state of mind of the Advent believers in the late 1840s well into the 1850s. Long upon the mountains weary have the scattered flock been torn, dark the desert paths, and dreary, grievous burdens have they borne. These were songs of experience with frequent references to tears and long, arduous labor and frequent disappointment and opposition and ridicule from the world. Many of these hymns of this period portray the world and earthly life as, as tough and dreary and of believers as persecuted But notice also the focus is still on the hope that Jesus is coming soon. Soon He comes with clouds descending. All His saints entombed arise. Oh, we long for Thine appearing. Come, O Savior, quickly come, blessed hope. Our spirits cheering. Take Thy ransom children home. Even as late as 1858, the believers still hoped the coming of their Savior, was very soon. This was the crucible of post-disappointment Adventism, the great disappointment. It's a really nice birthday story, isn't it? Yeah. Of course, that's not all of it. The Seventh-day Adventist church wouldn't be founded until 1863. That's 19 years after 1844. But this disappointment is a bedrock piece of where we come from as a faith community. And Miller made a mistake. He thought Jesus was coming back on October 22nd, and he got it wrong. All the Advent believers got it wrong. And through the years, the critics have leveled their criticism. How can you take seriously a church with a history like that? You're flawed from the get-go, founded in error, birthed in a mistake. People ask, and maybe you've asked, how could God allow such a thing to happen? Why didn't he correct it? But maybe that's not the the right question. Maybe the question is not, how could a church grow out of a, such a mistake? But rather, how did a church grow in spite of such a mistake? And when you think about it that way, you begin to realize that our birthday story really isn't so different from many others in the Bible. You think of the birth of the Christian church, okay? The early Christian church grew out of an experience of bitter disappointment, too, did it not? I mean, its founder was nailed to the cross as a criminal. All the early believers were scattered. When reports of the resurrected Jesus first began to circulate among the followers, practically none of them believed it was true. In chapter 24 of his biography, Luke tells the story of those two dejected followers that Jackie referred to this morning, following Jesus home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. In the aftermath of the execution of Jesus, their whole world has come crashing down. And as they walk along, talking about how their hopes have been crushed to pieces, a stranger joins them, and they don't recognize him. They figure he's just another pilgrim going home from the Passover like we are. As they walk, he asks a question. Hey, what are you guys talking about anyway? Anyway. And the Bible says that when they heard that question, they just stopped in their tracks. They were so brokenhearted, they just stopped dead in their tracks. And they look at this guy with their sad faces, and one of them, named Clopas, he answers, well, don't you even know what has happened in Jerusalem? Don't you even have a clue? And the story comes tumbling out about how Jesus and all the miracles he he performed and all his healings and all his teachings and the crowds and how they had all pinned their hopes on him, that he was the one who was going to deliver Israel and throw off the Roman yoke, that he was the promised Messiah. Everything had pointed in that direction. Everything indicated it was him. But then the religious leaders and the Romans killed him and even then, they tell him about the rumors they'd heard of the women, you know, rumors that Jesus had risen from the dead, and some of them even claimed to see him. But that others had gone to check out the story and they couldn't find him. It's evident in this story that they really loved Jesus and they were really crushed by the disappointment. But it's also evident that they had made a fatal error in the kind of Messiah they were hoping for, right? And so this stranger, (laughs) they have no clue who he is. This stranger starts giving them a Bible study right there on the road as they walk along. Luke says he began with Moses and the prophets, and this guy explained to them the true work of the Messiah. And it says that their hearts burned within them as he spoke. Stuff that they had completely missed for years now began to make sense. Little clues that they had missed along the way, like Jesus telling them ahead of time he was going to die. It all came alive in their memories. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember he said that. How could we have missed that? And the light began to go on for them. And, of course, the story of those disappointed followers and their stranger friend has a very very happy ending because they get to the little village of Emmaus where they where they live but the stranger is going on farther so they beg him to stop for the night and share a meal with him and when he does and they sit down to supper and the stranger raises his hand to offer the blessing for the meal Luke says at that point their eyes were open and they recognized him it was Jesus it was Jesus And their disappointment turned to joy. And they raced back over that seven-mile road to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the followers what they had learned. And word spread. And 50 days later, the Christian church was born. Out of a huge disappointment, out of a huge mistake, or rather, in spite of a huge mistake, 1813 years later, on that fateful morning of October 23rd, 1844, another group of bitterly disappointed followers was making the short journey to a neighboring farm to try to encourage their grieving friends and dejected neighbors when one of them, Hiram Edson by name, suddenly stopped as he was walking through this field of unharvested grain. He just stops dead in his tracks. For it seemed to him, as he would later write, that heaven had just been opened to his gaze. And like Cleopas of old, who suddenly caught new meaning in old scriptures he had heard hundreds of times, Hiram Edson now began to think of Bible passages they had studied over and over again. But now it seemed that he could discern New, different meanings. In Daniel 7, Edson suddenly remembered that it never says Jesus is coming to the earth. It said he was coming to the Ancient of Days. How in the world could they have missed that, he wondered. Suddenly, standing there in that field, his breath coming in quick, frosty puffs. He thought of other significant details in other scriptures that they had all missed. The Advent believers had put a lot of stock in the wedding parables of Matthew 25 and Luke 12. Suddenly, Luke 12 and verse 36 just flashed into his mind. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. Of course. Now it seemed as plain as day. They had all assumed Christ was coming to the earth for his wedding. But Jesus says we are to wait for him to return from the wedding. Little by little, so much of it began to make sense. Overlooked passages like Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 began to come into his mind. Then, Revelation chapter 10 and verse 9 burned itself into his consciousness. And these are the words that Daryl read to us this morning. John writes, So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour. But in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about peoples, nations, languages, and kings. In the joy of their expectation, the Advent believers had tasted the sweetness of the little scroll, the prophecies of the book of Daniel. But they had failed to grasp the significance of the bitter belly, the devastating disappointment. Slowly they began to understand, and as they did, their hearts burned within them. And so it was that out of the ashes of that crushing disappointment of October 22nd, some of the Advent believers found a renewed hope. And in the years to come, they would discover other Bible truths that they had missed, the joy of the seventh-day Sabbath shared with them by a Baptist woman, the meaning of the heavenly sanctuary and and its counterpart on earth, new insights into the character of God. And 19 years later, the Seventh-day Adventist church emerged. That's our birthday. That's our birthday. It's a story of grace, that even though we make mistakes, God brings his purposes to pass. That's always the story of grace. Grace only works for people who blow it. We get it wrong. We make mistakes. We misunderstand. But God brings his purposes to pass. He never fails. He never makes a mistake. And the whole point is this. God brought this church into existence because he wanted it. That's what birthdays are all about. He wanted it. We are wanted. We are here for a purpose. And it's good for us to remember that. So... In closing, let me mention just three quick lessons I think are appropriate for us to consider when we think about our birthday story. Number one, it's not the mistakes we make that define us as a people, it's what we do when we become aware that we've got something wrong. That's what defines us. It's the way it's always been for God's people Abraham, Moses, Israel, John the Baptist, the disciples of Jesus, they got so much of it wrong. But when God corrected their understanding, they followed him. They were willing to grow and adjust. There was an attitude of humility about them, even though they were sure of their calling. And maybe that should be our hallmark as a church, an attitude of humbleness with the assurance of our calling. Number two, hindsight is always 20-20, especially when it comes to prophetic material, okay? It's good to keep in mind why prophecy is given to us. It's given to us so that we can know Jesus better and love him more. It's not given so we can map out all the details of what's going to happen in the future. It might be good for us to remember that things might very well not come to pass the way we think they're going to, the way we expect them to. God sees perfectly. We don't. And finally, this one, number three, and this may be the most practical, maybe the most important for us here this morning. God does not always protect Christians from disappointment. But in our experiences of heartbreak, he will draw close to us if we will keep our hearts open. So, our closing hymn this morning has a familiar tune, but the words describe three significant events in the experience of Jesus. It was written by C. Mervyn Maxwell, one of the most beloved historians of the Adventist Church and a wonderful storyteller. He wrote a book about the great uh, Second Advent awakening entitled Tell It to the World, and a lot of what I shared with you this morning came from that book. The first verse of the hymn tells about the ascension of Jesus, the day he left his followers on earth. The second verse describes the fuller understanding of what actually happened on October 22, 1844. An understanding that would eventually come to define the early Adventists. And the final verse describes that glorious event that is still future. It's a birthday song. Happy birthday. I invite you to stand and sing it.